excited to be here for Sunday morning's version of Freaky Friday. Get it? That's my big opening joke, because Joe's clearly Jamie Lee Curtis. But it's not a good joke, because that would make me Lindsay Lohan. And yeah, uh-oh. I am really excited to be here with you today. Um, part of this series where we are connecting God's story to our story. We're doing it as an entire church. We're doing it in the sanctuary. We're doing it in the garden. We are doing it in our youth group. We are doing it in our children's ministry. We are going through the Bible, learning the Bible together, picking out ways of connecting God's story to our story. And this morning, I'm going to tell you a story. And our story is about a king of Judah, and his name is Hezekiah. And we can find his story in three books in the Old Testament. We can find it in 2 Kings, we can find it in 2 Chronicles, and in the book of Isaiah. So if you're even slightly skeptical at all that the Bible is accurate or some of the things that happened in there are accurate, I will say this about our story this morning. Archaeologists call it one of the best stories of the Iron Age, one of the most well-documented stories of the Iron Age, and one of the best to cross-reference with the rest of the Middle Eastern world's history documents, if that kind of stuff is important to you. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But we want to go ahead and get started, and we want to meet our, our king this morning. We're starting in 2 Kings chapter 18. In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. So you might notice a couple of things. You see king of Israel and king of Judah. What happened after David's son Solomon is the kingdom of Israel split in two. It became a northern and a southern kingdom. I have that up there for you. Israel became the kingdom to the north, and it retained 12 of the tribes that made up the entire country of Israel. The kingdom to the south, Judah, had two tribes. It had Judah and Benjamin. And you can see Jerusalem is in the southern kingdom, and that's going to be a focal point for part of our story today. So we have two kingdoms, but no matter where you were, a king of the northern or the southern kingdom, if you were, oopsie, if you were in David's line and you became one of the kings, there's a, a pretty good chance that you were terrible. Rotten. They were really, most of them were not good, you see. They practiced idolatry. They adopted pagan worship. They practiced sorcery, and very few of them served Yahweh faithfully. Hezekiah's father, we heard him mentioned already, his name was Ahaz, he was especially terrible, and on his list of terrible accomplishments, it included burning his kid alive to sacrifice him to a false god, and he had uh, the terrible idea of closing the temple, that temple that David wanted so desperately to build for God, that he asked God if he could build, and God said, nope, I have actually something better for you, I'm going to make a covenant with you, and through you... We're going to give basically the savior of the world through Jesus. You will always have a descendant, David. This is how much I love you, but you don't get to build the temple. In my mind, David probably got a better deal than just a building, right? But his son Solomon did. So Hezekiah's dad, Ahaz, he was so bad, he actually closed the temple. That's a pretty pr pronounced way of turning your back on God, right? To close God's house. 
So when Hezekiah was king, when he became king, we could have potentially assumed that maybe just based upon the majority of David's descendants that he would have been, Hezekiah would have been just as terrible as the rest of them. But that's not what we learned in that first verse. We learned that he did right in the eyes of the Lord. And he did a lot of things. He was an amazing young man, an amazing leader. The, the majority of what he did, um, as far as that, um, this kind of spiritual reformation, he, we can find in 2 Chronicles chapter 29, chapters 29 through 31, the first thing that he did was he removed all the wrong things that people were worship, worshiping. You see, before he became king, a lot of his predecessors, they set up um, places of false worship. They set up high places. They had Asherah poles. There were all of these altars and idols and all of this crap all over the country, and he got rid of it. He did. He got rid of it. And then he cleansed the temple, and he reopened it, and he restored temple worship. And that was a massive undertaking to go through that. But he knew how important it was that the people worshipped in the house that God had designed for them to worship in. Then he reorganized the services of the Levites and the priest, the holy people who were in charge of the temple, who were in charge of the teaching. They hadn't taught there in a long time, but he brought them back to work. And one of the most amazing things that he did <clears throat> was he reinstituted the feast of the Passover. Passover was that time for the people of Israel to remember that God had delivered them how God had saved them, he delivered them out of bondage, and the people, they just stopped remembering. Probably when they closed the temple and turned their back on God. But Hezekiah said, uh-uh, we're going to get back. We're going to get back to celebrating what God did for us. We're going to get back to remembering that time he delivered us. And so they threw this massive Passover feast. And not only did he invite all of the people of his kingdom in Judah, he sent letters to all of the people up north in the northern kingdom, his brothers and sisters, who they for sure weren't celebrating Passover. But he said, you guys come on too. We've got to get back. He was an evangelist. He was an evangelist to his own people. And they came. And the Bible tells us that there had not been such joy and celebration in Jerusalem since the days of Solomon, which I think was probably about 200 years earlier. And Passover usually lasted a week. They stayed for two. That's how excited they were to be there. That'd be like y'all staying for two hours. Wouldn't that be fun this morning? <laughs> now, to be fair, the first time I went through my message this morning, it was 75 minutes. So I'm not saying that can't happen. It just depends. But so he did all of these wonderful things. And what strikes me as the most impressive about this young man is that he had his priorities straight and is evidenced by his actions, right? Because you can say anything, but what you do tells me what's important to you. And he started doing all of this. It was so important to him that he started the first month of the first year of his reign. He didn't waste any time. He knew it was so important to get all of Israel, and remember, not just his people in Judah, the entire kingdom of Israel back on track with God. He knew it was important to break the cycle of spiritual weakness. And if you remember anything about this part, this first part of our time together this morning, that's what I want you to remember, is that spiritual renewal begins with breaking past cycles of spiritual weakness. And we all go through cycles 
The people back then weren't any different than we are now. Maybe we don't pray consistently. We should be praying without ceasing, <laughs> right? Whatever that prayer looks like, we should be in God's word daily. We should be studying God's word daily, memorizing scripture in God's word daily. We need to be coming to worship consistently so that we can be edified and strengthened and celebrate with our brothers and sisters because we're supposed to be here right now. Maybe part of our cycle of spiritual weakness is that we don't tithe. Sorry to hit your, hit your wallet with that one. It's a cycle of spiritual weakness, as is not serving in the church. We're called to serve. We have all been given gifts that we are to use in this place. I'm not talking about at the soup kitchen downtown. I mean in this place. And week after week, I hear ministry leaders say, we don't have enough people. We don't have enough people to greet. We don't have enough people to run the computer. We don't have enough people over in the sanctuary to be an usher, to be a yellow umbrella person so that when people, especially guests, come onto our campus, they know how to get around. They say we don't have enough people, and I say, how is that even possible? We have like 2,500 people that come to this church. How do we not have enough people to serve? It's because that's a cycle of spiritual weakness. I encourage you and challenge you this morning, whatever your cycle is, break it. Get your priorities straight. Follow in Hezekiah's footsteps. He was 25 years old. You know how hard it probably would have been for him to tear down all the places of false worship? He even broke something Moses made, if you go into 2 Kings. He reopened the temple. He did all of this stuff. It would have been hard for him to break the cycle, but he did it. And I encourage you too as well. Let's keep going in our story because we are about to get to a place that's uh, a lot more interesting. In the third year, excuse me, in the sixth year that Hezekiah was king, there was this group, this nation, this army, and they were called the Assyrians, and they were the current number one most feared army in the entire world. Every time they went to battle, every nation they went up against, they conquered, they beat them. They never lost a fight that they started with somebody, ever. And the only way that I could compare how bold and brave and vicious and victorious they were is that they were a, an army of all Terminators. And I don't mean like Terminator 1 or 2, where it's Arnold and like his face kind of peels off. I mean like Terminator 3 or 4, where he's all, they're all morphy and nothing can destroy them. They never lost. And they were especially cruel. When the Assyrians would defeat a nation and they would come in, those that they didn't slaughter, they would string up, they would string together by driving a large fish hook through their nose or through their mouth, and they would string them together and they would march them out. So they were really mean terminators as well. Lovely, right? So it's year six of Hezekiah being king. And the Syrians come into the northern kingdom, their brothers and sisters to the north, and they take over. And Hezekiah wasn't a dummy. If they're up north, guess where they're coming next? Judah. So he got to work, and he did all of these things to prepare his city and to prepare his people. And I, oopsie, I didn't bullet them out for you. <laughs> I thought I did. He fortified the city. He built a wall. He strengthened the wall around the city of Jerusalem. He built a wall outside of that. He fortified the watchtowers. And then he did this other thing that was amazing. He built a tunnel 
so water could flow. And what that means is he knew that the Assyrians, when they would come in, one of the first things that they would do to people is that they would stop water from getting into a city because guess how long you last without water? The answer is not very long. So what he did was he started at this spring outside of the city of Jerusalem called the Gihon Spring, and he had his men from the spring into the city of Jerusalem build a tunnel that was 100 feet down, six football fields long. Imagine how big that is. If you go to Jerusalem today, you can walk through it. It is still there, so water could flow. So he did the fortification, he built armor, he built this tunnel so the people would have some water, and then he prepared the hearts of his people. And he said to them, he said this, which we find in 2 Chronicles 32, verses 7 and 8. He said, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him, for there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people took confidence. Here was their leader. Not only did the people witness him doing all of these things to protect him, then he comes at them with this beautiful speech that's so full of encouragement. But I like to think that one of the reasons why the people gained confidence is those, a lot of those words were Hezekiah's. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. There are more with us than with him. He's repeating the words of Moses, of David to his army and to his people, of David to his son Solomon when David was encouraging his son Solomon, of Joshua when Joshua went into battle. Hezekiah knew his scripture, and he knew that the word of God could be used to inspire confidence. And that's the second thing that I ask that you take from our time together this morning, is to remember how important it is to dig in and to study God's word, to memorize God's word. It's helpful to you. It's helpful to remember. Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or dismayed. We use it. In the good times, we use it when it comes time for the battle, but we have to be prepared because the battle is coming. The world, the flesh, and the devil. It's three things that we battle against. Prepare yourself by knowing God's word. And it's a good thing that the people gained confidence because sure enough, eight years after the fall of the northern kingdom, the king of Assyria, his name was Sennacherib, he comes in to Judah, Hezekiah's kingdom, and he takes all of the cities except for one. There was only one left, and it was Jerusalem, and it was where Hezekiah and his men were. And Sennacherib sends out to the city of Jerusalem, he sends out an officer. And his officer's name is the Rabshakeh. And he sends him out to talk to Hezekiah's guys. And by talk, I'm, the only way to describe it is a verbal assault that is seriously messed up psychological warfare. He's awful. He is terrible. He verbally attacks their alliances, their friendships. The Rabshakeh picks on their faith. He says that their army is weak, and then he has the audacity to say, hey, I'm just saying, God told me to come and destroy you, so that's why I'm here. He does all of this. He's terrible. So Hezekiah's guys, they, they ask him to stop. They say, please stop. Speak to us in Aramaic. It was a different language. All of the people had gathered around, right? Because 
Sometimes it's fun to gather around and, and witness a fight. <laughs> right? Every, it's like it's watching the train wreck. Everybody just gathers around and watches. But Hezekiah's men, they say, please don't. Please don't. We don't need you to freak people out. But the worst part about a bully is that they don't care, right? And this is how he responds to them asking. But the Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the people sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? That is how bad he was. Who says that? That guy did, because he's bad. You might have thought that I was being like exaggeration nation by saying that he was really bad. No. Terrible. And then he keeps going. He says, don't let Hezekiah deceive you or make you trust in the Lord. He's so backhanded, right? He's trying to destroy confidence in leaders and destroy their faith in God. Then he says, for thus says the king of Assyria, make peace with me and come out. And every one of you will eat from his own vine until I come and take you away to a land like your own, a land of grain and wine, of bread and vineyards. He's like a land of milk and honey. Never mind the fact that in order to get me to this promised land, because you're trying to make surrender an attractive option, you're going to get me there by shoving a hook through my nose and leading me out of the city. Didn't mention that part. But then he says this, and it's the worst thing that the Rabshakeh says. He says, has any one of the gods of the nations delivered its land from the hand of the king of Assyria. His cunning is just terrible. Because what he's saying now is that all of these other places that we've been, they all had gods. Their gods didn't save them. And guess what? Your God will not save you either. Hezekiah was wise before he sent his men out to meet the Rabshakeh. He told them to, to be quiet, to not say anything. And they didn't. And part of me thinks that they were so mortified by the dung and urine part that they didn't know what to say. Like, what do you even say to that? Because who says that? I've heard some really bad fights in person and faux fights on TV. Dung and urine is terrible. <laughs> like, that ranks in the top five. Thing, the worst things I've ever heard somebody say to somebody else. But they were quiet, and they, they were deeply affected. The Bible tells us that they tore their clothes. And when Hezekiah heard, he tore his clothes too. And that was a sign back in those times that you were really in mourning. You were grieved. So Hezekiah sends word to Isaiah the prophet. Remember, you just heard Lori a little bit ago talk about what a prophet was. A prophet was a spokesperson of God. He wants to know what God says. And here's the response. Thus says the Lord, do not be afraid. It's the second time this morning we've heard that, right? Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. So God knows what's up. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. And sure enough the Rabshakeh leaves Jerusalem. And Hezekiah is probably super excited because Isaiah's words are coming true and he's thrilled because this jerk, oh, he's such a jerk, is gone. But just because you're not in person doesn't mean you can't bully. You see, bullying back then is no different than bullying now. He sent him a letter. The Rabshakeh sends Hezekiah a letter. 
He's using multiple forms of media to be a bully. That's what our people, that's what people deal with today. See, people are no different now than they were back then. We're just as terrible. Not all of us, not, certainly not you guys, them. You never do that. So he sends him this letter, and in this letter, he comes at God again. Your God is weak. Your God is not strong. He is not going to save you. We've beat everybody. FYI, don't forget, we've beat everybody, and we're about to come and beat you, so just give up. Hezekiah takes this letter. He gets the letter in his hand, and he takes it, and he doesn't send word to Isaiah this time. He goes right to the house of the Lord himself. And he spreads that horrible letter out in front of God. And he prays. He says, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God. You alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear all the words of Sennacherib. Hear all the words, the ones he spoke, the ones that I'm putting out in front of you. Hear all the words which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid to waste all the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. What I love about this part is that Hezekiah's problems, they immediately became God's problems, right? He has a problem, he takes it right to God. And notice in this prayer, he doesn't say, God, deliver me, deliver my people. God, don't you remember I did all of this stuff, great stuff for you? We had like the bomb.com celebration Passover ever. We did all of these things. We restored your temple. I broke apart all of the terrible places. He doesn't do any of that. He reminds, he says that God, it's the living God who's been insulted. And if there is to be any deliverance, it's so you may be glorified, not me, you may be glorified, and your name may be great in all of the earth. And God responds. He responds in this magnificent way. Thus, I'm going to read it because this, this is my favorite part of the whole story. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me, because you have prayed, remember that, because you have prayed to me, Concerning the king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel, by your servants you have mocked the Lord, because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears. Check this out. I will put my hook in your nose. I will put my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. Therefore, says the Lord, concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with the shield or cast a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into this city 
declares the Lord, for I will defend the city to save it. For my own sake and for the sake of my servant David, boom, God, God drops the mic and walks out. It's exactly what he does. Pastor Joe liked that. He's laughing in the back. Right? I will defend this city. And we read a little further if we go into the next verse that that night an angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000. 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. And when the people woke up the next morning, it says, Behold, these were all dead bodies. A couple weeks ago, Bruce and I were talking, and he said, you really connected with this story, and I have. I love this story. Since the minute that I knew I got to be here with you guys this morning, I was really, really excited. Because Hezekiah is this amazing young man, and he's an amazing young leader, and he knows what his priorities are. And he attacks his priorities. He is so passionate about restoring Israel. And all of Israel, remember, it's not just his own people that he was worried about. He was worried about others, about restoring their relationship with God, of repenting and asking for forgiveness. And he's an amazing leader, and he rallies his people together, and he says words that inspire them with confidence. But if I were to be perfectly honest with you, the reason why I love this story so much is because of God's response because that broken part of me is so very sick of turning on the TV every day and seeing bad stuff, talking to my friends, my peers at work, reading stories on the internet where I hear about all of these bad things, and it always seems like the enemy continues to win. And I'm sick of it. So that part of me connected so well with the story because I'm ready for the victory. I'm ready. Aren't you guys ready for the victory? Like, how do you not read that? And you're like, oh, yes, get him, God. Mm. Mm. Time. But then God tells me, simmer down. <laughs> simmer down. Because God is faithful. You see, when God says, I will defend this city for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David, we can't take it at face value. We can't take it just purely to mean the words in, in the way that we would normally just read them, right? That God will defend the city for my own sake. We can't take that to mean that God won't let his name be defamed because the reality is that every single day God's name is defamed. God's name is mocked. God's name is reviled all throughout the world. Terrible things have been done in God's name but I don't see anybody dropping dead recently because of that. So we can't say it's that. We can't say when he says, for the sake of my servant David, I mean, yes, David was God's boy. David was handpicked by God. But that's not it either. That's not what that means. When God says, I will defend this city for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David, he is calling on Hezekiah and all believers, all of us, to remember the promise that he made with and for those who are covered under that thing that we've been learning about called the covenant. The covenant that God made with his people that it would save both Jew and Gentile through mercy and through grace, and that God will have mercy 
on his people and he will save his people regardless of who they are, where they've been, what they've done, what they're gonna continue to do because we'll sin probably the minute we walk out the door. But that's what that covenant is. And I was trying to come up with a way to really explain it, but instead of using my own words, which would never be anywhere near as eloquent, there's this guy, his name is John Calvin. He is a famous theologian. He's the founder of the Presbyterian Church. He's one of the most influential theologians, really, in, in the history of our church. And I came across something that he said, which is just beautiful. He said, though we most highly deserve a thousand deaths, yet it is enough for God to look to his goodness and faithfulness that he may fulfill what he hath promised. The elect, and I put in parens the called, will always have this as a very safe refuge, that although they bring nothing of their own to appease the wrath of God, yet since God moved by nothing else than his infinite goodness, built his church and determined to defend it, he will never suffer it to perish. That's what turns our mourning into dancing, like what we turned about last week. God is faithful. He doesn't forget his promises. He promised and he keeps his word. Faithfulness is part of the characteristics of God. It is as intrinsically woven in who he is as our need to breathe. And it's important to know that faithfulness doesn't mean full of faith. It means worthy of faith. See, faithfulness says... I keep my promises. I'm going to hold true to my word. I'm not going to fail you. I'm not ever going to quit on you. And it makes God supremely happy to show his faithfulness to us, to show himself how faithful he is to us. Because as he shows his faithfulness to us, we learn more and more to trust him. And yes, he allows trials to come, undoubtedly. <laughs> Sometimes it feels like trials come every day, if I were going to be perfectly honest with you. And yes, he allows them to come, but he lets these things happen so we can show that we trust him or we can show that we don't trust him, right? It reveals the depth of our willingness to trust that he will strengthen, that he will make a way, that he will protect us, that he will be faithful to his word. The question I have, and I, we're almost done, that I want to leave for you, uh, leave with you this morning, is do you believe that? Do you really believe that God is faithful? Or do you view God's faithfulness solely in light of your current situation and the outcome that you expect? Do you believe that you're covered under the covenant? Or do you think that God's only faithful to you when you're, you've been given a victory? Because we're not always given the victory of 185,000 dropping dead. But we're given other victories. And let me tell you, when you're having a good day, God is faithful. When you're having a bad day, God is faithful. God's faithfulness is not determined by you in the kind of day that you're having. God's faithfulness is for all times, for yesterday, today, tomorrow, next month, next year, next decade, next millennia. But the question is, do you 
believe it? And do you live like you believe it? <laughs>